This is Global Mining News, available worldwide on the internet. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. Welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. I'm your online editor and host. And yeah, actually this week I'm helping with the paper too. And let me tell you, the news business is a relentless business. All you aspiring media journalist types out there. You might want to start your own little blog first just to make sure you have the passion because it is a relentless business and you have to be entirely committed to it. You must, as they say, feed the beast. And so here we are. Yeah, you enjoy your Labor Day. Did you have a good time on Labor Day? Because we're working. We have a newspaper to put out. So uh, I am filling in and I happily... I'm filling in. It's a joy, actually, to do a newspaper. It's one of those things that it's a lot of work, but you just have a little spark in your soul that lights up when you have the opportunity to do a newspaper and have an audience. And speaking of having an audience, our numbers are growing. So thank you to all our new listeners. Thank you to our loyal listeners. I am doing everything I can to make this A very interesting, provocative challenge for your brain on a weekly basis. So I am very happy to have you on board. Our newspaper is quite interesting as well this week. We have a really great feature from Kelsey Rolf. Unfortunately, it came in a little close to our deadline, so we wanted to put it on page one, but we settled for page three. Uh, it's too important because what Kelsey Rolf is looking at is how the mining industry is keeping the coronavirus out of its minds. And she goes really in-depth, talks to people, gets a really inside view of what people are doing to prevent it. So it's a must-read for any mining executive out there. So that's this week's issue the Northern Miner newspaper, and that'll be on newsstands this coming Monday. So lots to look forward to there. And we also have full coverage of the Global Mining Symposium in the newspaper. We have four or five pages of Global Mining Symposium coverage. We have gold commentaries. We have mining executives like Humana's Gold's executive chairman. We have Franco Nevada's president and CEO. We have major gold commentators from Sprott and more. So lots to look forward to there. And coming up in this week's episode is my interview with Dr. Chris Hind. And Chris Hind has a long career in the mining industry, 40 years, and he was at the Mining Journal where he was an editor. We have a very interesting discussion on really the big picture of the mining industry. My favorite topic is the big picture. What does this all mean and why should we care? Chris has a lot of opinions. Uh, Something else that is must listen for this industry because we, again, we don't need to agree on everything, but I think it's important that I think the interview will serve its purpose of helping you see where you stand on a lot of these issues and help you better articulate what position you have because the world is changing. You know, like it's really not the 1980s anymore. And we want to help you have the tools you need to navigate uh, the world in 2020, especially if you're in this mining industry. So a lot of interesting things being said on just the nature of resource scarcity, ESG, and the geopolitical 
nature of, say, China and Russia's hunt for gold versus our sort of more a kind of purely capitalist model where it's private enterprise and governments aren't really involved. So there's a lot of tension in those things. So we discuss that in depth. So lots to look forward to. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at northernminer. Find us on Instagram at the Northern Miner and on Facebook and LinkedIn and also on YouTube where we host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify. And with that, let's turn to Gord Sosinski for the latest on how Petro-Canada Lubricants is pushing the envelope on how to run your mining machines in the best way possible using the best oil you possibly can. Joining me now is Gord Sosinski, Senior Technical Services Advisor for Petro-Canada Lubricants. And Gord, great to have you back. Uh, Tell me, do you need to change your engine oil viscosity to be ready for winter or summer? Or is it something you can just keep the same all year? Well, thanks for having me back, Adrian. But yes, that's a really good question. And the simple answer is no, seasonal oil changes are no longer required. Using a good quality semi-synthetic or synthetic lubricant in the correct viscosity grade can allow you to run that lubricant all season. First, we have to understand that the viscosities that you're using, and for this example, let's use a 5W40. The 5W is, as the W suggests, the winter number and indicates how thin the oil will be at the startup at cold temperatures. So in the case of a 5W, it'll be in the neighborhood of about minus 35. The 40 on the back end is your SAE or Society of Automotive Engineers viscosity grade that defines the viscosity the oil should be at operating temperature. So therefore, the first number says the oil will flow at very cold temperatures and still be a 40 weight when the engine is at operating temperature, which means it'll still be thick enough to provide engine protection. So whether it's minus 40 or plus 40 when the engine is running, the engine temperature is going to be the same. So that viscosity protection is going to be important. The reality is the more you understand about viscosity and its properties, the better your ability to make an informed lubricant decision. That is so interesting. And it sounds like I could not have to worry then about, oh, is it October, November, or it gets hot and then all of a sudden it gets cold and it gets hot again as the Canadian uh, weather will do. So is this an advancement? Oddly enough, the technology that's used today in terms of base stock and additive systems is far superior than it was. But the idea of an all-season oil has been around for decades. I started eliminating seasonal changes and running 0W30s in gasoline engines and 0W40s in diesel engines back in the early 90s. And you're saying, because the Canadian winter, like I come from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, and with the wind chill, it actually, like, it it sounds crazy, but they they said it was minus 60. Uh, I remember one New Year's Eve. And so how low can it go? It depends on the product you buy, but your typical zero W's will be able to start in sub minus 40 temperatures. And I've spent an inordinate amount of time in Saskatoon and in northern Saskatchewan at the mines. And yeah, a zero W40 has performed in the haul trucks up there and in personal vehicles as well. That is very, very impressive. Uh, yeah, that brings me back to my youth trying to start the car in minus 40 in the garage. <laughs> Great. Well, thanks, Gord. That was really interesting. And we'll put all the information in the show notes. How can people contact you? They can get to us on our website at lubricants.petro-canada.com or toll free at 1-866-335-3369. 
Okay, thanks again. All right, you take care. Thank you, you too. And that was Gord Sosinski for this week's Mining Minute. And he will be back next week for another edition. And if you would like to learn more about Petro-Canada Lubricants, you can also find a link in the show notes. So thank you once again to Petro-Canada Lubricants for helping support this show. This one really caught my eye. Russia's Norgold has sweetened its offer for Cardinal Resources, which has a project in Ghana, and they have sweetened their offer, yet China's Shandong is also trying to get Cardinal Resources project in Ghana, the Namdini project. So they're, Norgold and Shandong are duking it out in order to see who can take over Cardinal Resources. And I thought to myself, this really says a lot. This is the weird sort of thing that you're going to find at the Northern Miner. Again, this kind of geopolitical, under the surface, I mean, sure, it's some small project in Ghana, some gold project, but what is going on here? I mean, really, you have Russia and China. How often do you see them duking it out in public? You don't, at least not that I see. But here, they're battling over Cardinal Resources, uh, which is an Australian-based company. So let's take a closer look. This is by Mining.com staff. Norgold has sweetened its proposed takeover offer of Cardinal Resources in order to beat out competition from China's Shandong Gold. The latest offer would see the Russian gold miner acquire all the Cardinal shares that it does not currently own for $0.90 cents Australian per share in cash, up from the previous offer of $0.66 cents per share, so that's a significant, it's almost not quite, maybe 40% higher. Uh, Cardinal's board of directors has advised shareholders not to take any action until a further update is provided. And they have previously received an offer of 70 cents from Shandong, which received backing from the board. This Shandong offer is subject to a 50.1% minimum acceptance condition with the Foreign Investment Review Board already granting approval. And here's where it gets interesting, too. Cardinal also told shareholders that while Norgold's cash offer was higher than the offer made by Shandong, the company has certain obligations under the bid implementation agreement signed with Shandong, including matching rights in favor of the Chinese gold producer. Now, that paragraph might as well be in Chinese for me because I don't understand exactly. But let me unpack it. Like, let me point in the direction to what it seems to be saying. Cardinal also told shareholders that while Norgold's cash offer was higher, so Norgold made a higher offer, Cardinal is telling the shareholders, hey, Although Norgold, Russia's Norgold, made a higher offer, the company has certain obligations under the bid implementation agreement signed with Shandong. So they're saying, we have signed some sort of agreement with Shandong previously. And then this part that I don't quite understand, but you make of it what you will, including matching rights in favor of the Chinese gold producer. So what that means, but it sounds like it's not as simple as highest bidder. I think we've seen this before. Now, Shandong is also in the news, remember, for the TMAC mine that's in Canada's Arctic and 
I don't think we have any updates on that. It sounds like the Canadian government is still taking its time. I mean, just pure speculation. I think Canada wants its citizens back. And I don't think they're going to do anything. Let's see. But I don't see why they would do anything until they get their citizens back. And with China treating Canada the way it's treating it, would you invite a state-backed miner in China into your very sensitive Arctic region? In a sense, maybe the surprising thing is it hasn't been rejected yet, but maybe they're hoping to use it as leverage to release these Canadian citizens that are being held. So that one, so you see how all of this, you know, mining, you really, if you look at it on the surface level, it's kind of like, oh yeah, uh, mining company A takes over mining company B, no big deal. But you see how it starts to all, there's a latent content here. There's an underlying narrative, which is kind of what I enjoy piecing together. And it's very speculative, but it's a very interesting. So, and what else do we see with Russia and China? You kind of see the hunt for gold, right? And now Norgold is not state-backed as far as we know. But I mean, what we do know about Russia is there's a lot of oligarchs in charge there. And if you have a big gold mine, and we also know that Russia and China are trying to up their gold reserves. So, and we have other stories on that, which actually we're going to tackle. So a very interesting, seemingly benign story, uh, but there's a lot going on under the surface with this cardinal resources. One might think, one might think. Now let's just continue on this theme because we got this interesting story on gold production, which relates. Now, Fitch, Fitch Solutions, has put out a report, and they say that gold production growth will average 2.5% annually from 2020 to 2029. This is by Valentina Ruiz-Leotode from Mining.com. According to this report, the result would be an acceleration from the average growth of just 1.2% over 2016 to 2019. In the market analysts' review, Russian gold production will lead the rise, with gold output jumping from 11.3 million ounces in 2020 to 15.5 million ounces in 2029. This figure represents average annual growth of 3.7% during the 2020 to 2029 time period and would see Russia overtake China as the largest gold miner, accounting for 11.6% of global output by 2029 compared with 10.6% in 2020. Russia's production growth is being driven by the central bank's desire to increase its gold holdings as a result of ongoing U.S. sanctions and the rising risk of Russian banks being frozen out of dealing in U.S. dollar-denominated assets. Back to this reserve currency thing. So as you see with the Trump administration, it seems as though they're using the dollar as way of gaining leverage over countries and getting them to do what they want to do. So if you get frozen out of the dollar system as SWIFT, that really complicates your life dramatically. So it seems that Russia and China's response, one of their responses is to increase their gold holdings. Russian gold production will be underpinned by at least 21 new mining projects due to come online. 21. At the forefront of this is Polyus Gold, whose Natalka project achieved full production in 2019 and has a production capacity of 420,000 to 470,000 ounces per year. China's gold production, on the other hand, is expected to remain steady in the next 10 years with an average annual growth rate of 0.2%, 
a notable slowdown compared with its average annual growth of 3.1% in the previous decade. Fitch Review states that these results are the product of stricter environmental regulations, particularly those around solid waste from gold prospecting, which led to a wave of gold mine closures and output declines in major producing provinces, including Shandong, Zhengzhi, and Hunan. And then here, this kind of relates to Cardinal again. At the same time, major Chinese firms are expected to ramp up investment in foreign gold mines as the country's gold demand growth outpaces production. As an example, Fitch highlights Shandong's purchase of a 50% stake in the Valadero mine in Argentina from Barrick Gold for $960 million. So... You start to connect the dots on this, some pretty interesting moves, all at the northernminer.com. The stories I see here are more than you might think from a simple trade newspaper. Continuing on, uh, we got news from the EU. This is Global Mining News, and the EU has added lithium to its critical raw materials list. And this is by Celia Jamazmi, mining.com. The European Union has added lithium used in batteries that power electric vehicles to a list of critical materials as part of a strategy to reduce its reliance on imports. This is a pretty shocking number. The group of 27 nations will need about 60 times more lithium and 15 times more cobalt for EV batteries and energy storage by 2050, analysts estimate. The EU's demand for rare earths used in high-tech devices and military applications is expected to increase tenfold over the same period. The European Commission said on Thursday that the coronavirus pandemic has highlighted the world's increasing reliance on electronics and technology for remote work, education, and communication. As a result, shortages of key elements needed to manufacture those items threaten to undermine critical industries and expose the bloc to supply squeezes from China and other resource-rich companies, the commission said. And we have a quote from European Industry Commissioner Terry Breton, quote, we cannot afford to rely entirely on third countries. By diversifying the supply from third countries and developing the EU's own capacity for extraction, processing, recycling, refining, and separation of rare earths, we can become more resilient and sustainable. Finally, on this article, I mean, this is like the underpinnings of geopolitics. Is There's a very strong geopolitical underpinning to all of these stories. Finally, in this story, the commission also said it wants to start a partnership with Canada and interested African countries next year. Now, actually, we talked about this story before. Do you remember last week's story that the Saskatchewan government commits to rare earth processing plant by 2022? See how all of this is connecting together? So the plot thickens because right now it's all kind of policy. Oh, we should do this. It's getting urgent. But it's funny how these kind of we've gotten been getting warnings on this sort of critical materials for about a decade now, maybe a little longer. And as they, things are starting to get real, as they say. And uh, yeah, he's. I think the coronavirus, everything's gotten a little more real. And we've, unfortunately, we've seen that countries aren't cooperating, whether it's China, the U.S., or anyone else. We're not getting the kind of global cooperation that we used to get or that we at least had the illusion of getting. And so things are getting real. Continuing on, BHP is going to be using greener energy for its Australian coal operations, and BHP, I think on the 10th, is going to be making a big announcement on what they're planning on doing to reduce their emissions. 
But leading up to that, they've had a couple of announcements. And on September 2nd, they have inked a deal to support the development of new solar and wind farms in Australia's Queensland state as part of the company's effort to use more renewable energy. And this follows the, quote, very tangible climate actions that the company has promised, including cutting its operational emissions by 2030 and becoming carbon neutral by 2050. And we have a quote from BHP President of Minerals for Australia, Edgar Basto, and he said in a statement, quote, This is an important step forward in BHP's transition to more sustainable energy use across our portfolio and a first for our Australian operations. Right now, BHP currently sources 100% of the power it uses from the largely coal-fired Queensland grid. So they're using coal and they want to get off of it. The renewable power purchasing agreement with CleanCo will run for five years from January 1st to 2021. It will support the development of the new solar and wind farms in Queensland, including the Solar Western Downs Green Power Hub, due for completion in 2022, and the Carrera Wind Farm, which is slated to begin operations in 2023. And BHP is pursuing similar renewable supply deals for its iron ore operations in Western Australia and its Olympic Dam in South Australia. And it also talks about their Escondida mine in Chile, where they're also changing the way they use water. Uh, They want to eliminate the use of water from aquifers in Chile by 2030. So BHP is making more sounds towards becoming more carbon neutral. And finally... Just a quick little story here. Nearly a ton of CO2 is emitted for every ounce of gold that is produced in 2019. And this was a report from S&P Global. And it says here that gold mines emitted on average 0.8 tons of CO2 equivalent for every ounce of gold that was produced in 2019. Strong price performance has led to a large number of new gold mines opening. And with this also concerns of mining's impact on climate change. Another recent report from Wood McKenzie found that emissions from metals production will need to have over the next 20 years in order to achieve the Paris Agreement decarbonization goals. According to SMP, underground gold mines, which operate at higher grades and process less material, generally have lower greenhouse gas footprints than their larger open pit counterparts. Yeah, it looks like Canadian mines have among the lowest greenhouse gas emissions due in part to the large proportion of high grade underground mines. Another significant factor is that Source of power across the country with as much as two-thirds of the country's electricity derived from renewable sources and 82% from non-greenhouse gas emitting sources. And we have a quote from the report. As we evaluate how free cash generation compares to the mine's emissions, Canada and eastern and central Africa are considerably ahead with the former home to a greater number of mines. That's Canada. So... There you have it. So just a little interesting report from, and just the nature of this report that we're going to measure carbon per ounce gold. That's a very, I've never seen a report like that before. Maybe they've been doing it for a while, but all very interesting, a sign of the times. And speaking of gold, let's turn to metal prices and see how gold is doing per ounce and everything else. Thank our friends mining.com for providing us with these prices each and every week. And if you'd ever like to see these prices for yourself, just go to mining.com/markets and these numbers 
will appear. And on September 8th, gold is trading at $1,932.26 per ounce. That is $43 lower than last week's quote. Silver is also lower at $26.98 per ounce. That is $1.50 lower than last week, and platinum is trading at $915.60 per ounce. That is $34 lower than last week's quote. And palladium is higher at $2,319.10. That is $27 higher than last week's quote. And turning to our industrial metals... Copper is trading at $3.03 per pound. That is two cents lower than last week. Aluminum is unchanged at 80 cents per pound. Lead is down two cents at 88 cents per pound. Nickel is also down nine cents to $6.90 per pound. Tin is much higher at $8.33 per pound, and that is 24 cents higher. So big lift there. Cobalt is a penny lower at $14.97 per pound, and zinc is $0.03 cents lower at $1.12 per pound. What do we see here? I see consolidation throughout the precious metals, with one exception, with palladium going higher, and also in industrial metals, consolidation, again, near quite high levels, with tin really standing out significantly higher. And it is the closest we got to the current price. The second highest price in our quotes was from five weeks ago when we were at $8.14. And then it went back down to $8.01. And now it's back to $8.33. So tin is really the standout with palladium taking second prize. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have Dr. Chris Hind, who was previously editorial director of the Mining Journal and most recently was head of S&P Global Market Intelligence Metals and Mining Team and was also recently at the Mining Beacon, where he was editor-in-chief and lead commentator. And now he is a contributor to the Northern Miner. He contributes a commentary once every couple of weeks or so, and I caught up with him at his home in London over Skype, and we discussed all things mining, the big picture in particular, and Chris Hine has a lot of interesting thoughts on this. So without further ado, here is my interview with Chris Hind. to welcome Chris Hind, who is a new contributor to the Northern Miner newspaper and website. He's delivered three articles so far, and, and he was previously the editorial director of the Mining Journal, and more recently, he's the head of S&P Global Market Intelligence Metals and Mining Team. Chris, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Adrian. It's a pleasure to be talking to you. Great. And was that bio uh, accurate? Uh, yeah, it's, it, it, it's probably on the generous side because uh, we say in the UK, I'm a jack of all trades and a master of none. My CV's somewhat unusual in that 
I did a BSc in mining and then a, a PhD in uh, rock mechanics. And the main reason I did a PhD was not because I'm a huge academic. It's just my, my fiance at the time is a medic and she had a seven-year seven year course to do. So I, I'd had to kill time because I, I had a scholarship from Anglo-American to work for them. And I, I, I didn't particularly want to track out to South Africa three years ahead of my fiance. So I then did a couple of years with Anglo on their underground gold mines Decided actually underground mining was uh, far too much like hard work. So worked for consultancy companies for a few years. SRK, you're probably aware of. Sure. Goldra Associates. Uh, Did a very brief stint in stockbroking and was uh, then spent most of my 40 years in the industry was actually with uh, Mining Journal. I was the editor of um, the weekly Mining Journal and the monthly uh, Mining Magazine. And then um, after they were taken over by venture capitalists, did a did a stint with Intiera, a database company. And then through no fault of my own, they were they were bought out twice um, from under me. So I moved company quite swiftly for a while and ended up heading up, as you said, the research team at Standard well, S&P for the last few years. And I actually retired on my 65th birthday a couple of years ago. Well, congratulations. And yeah, that is a wide varied career yeah it's it made me a, probably ideal for a journalist because i've done a little bit of lots of things and and, and 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 didn't actually ever spend a long time doing one particular particular career my phd was in coal mining and then i i didn't touch coal mining again until i was writing about it quite a long time afterwards most of my digging experience was in gold and diamonds Interesting. So have you become somewhat of an expert on coal a little bit? I was an expert briefly on you know, the roof roof movements in coal mines, um, as you do if you spend three years just up and down but, yeah, measuring things. In fact, I have a claim to fame of stopping a coal mine in South Wales because I was there with my stopwatch and uh, you know tape measures and things, measuring various things, and the miners thought I was measuring their effort and <laughs> came to a, a grinding halt and the the mine manager ordered me out of the pit. <laughs> Interesting. So, you, did you actually stop the construction of a mine, or did you just? Oh, well, uh, no, just for a day. Well, for, just for a, a day. The gotcha. actual operating, because it was at a time when Margaret Thatcher was in control of uh, the mm-hmm. prime minister, and everyone was super sensitive of um, sort of consultants and so-called experts coming down and measuring their effort. And they thought I was somebody who was measuring their effort rather than right. their roof coming down. <laughs> that's, that's interesting. And on the coal front, I mean, I remember watching this course on the great courses once, and it was on geology. And the last course was actually talking about how it was talking about oil and coal and how coal is used for electricity and how there is such a thing as clean coal is what the professor was saying do you know anything about this? Well, I'd hate to gain say a professor, but I mean, there's cleaner coal. Um, you know, some coal is, is 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 burnt remarkably efficiently, and it's if it's high uh, geothermal content, it'll it'll be very efficient. But obviously, it doesn't get close to in terms of carbon efficiency to nuclear power or solar power and the like. So, you know, it's. There is some very bad coal around. I mean, a lot of Europe is, burn, is still burning pretty awful stuff, you know, brown coal or lignite. And mm-hmm. the British mines weren't great. That's why we've only got, we're just about to close the last coal mine in the whole of the, of the whole of England. Your article on uh, Earth Overshoot Day. Right? Yes, that's uh, right. That, talked that, about that. That, that alluded to that, yeah, which is, which is pretty astonishing, as I said in that article, you know, it was, there was, you know, millions of people working in the, the industry in this country a hundred years ago, and we had one thousand five hundred mines. 
you know, we're not going long. So as you kind of zoom out a bit, so now you're with S&P Global. And so tell us about your role there. Uh, you say you retired. Or are you still there? Yeah, no, yeah, no. What I are you up to? Fact, I don't really work for Mining Beacon anymore, apart from the occasional assistance. I mean, I was for three years headed up their team. And um, for your listeners that don't know it, uh, S&P, well, one of the companies it owns is Standard & Poor's. So we're talking a, a huge American company here. And their, their real claim to fame, in addition to S&P, is that they've got this huge database. I mean, mainly it's on banks and finance generally, but they also have uh, comfortably the world's biggest mining database. So we had sort of 30,000 projects, 3,000 mines, all the listed companies on a real-time basis we were measuring. So, you know, I had every stock exchange in the world reporting to me automatically, and we had a team of 20-odd people looking at the trends. So I was tasked with writing reports on what was happening in the world. And of course, it's a gift for a you know a journalist or a mining engineer. I was just looking at all the numbers. So every month and every quarter we just reported to the to the industry and to share to subscribers what was happening, you know, how many drill holes, what mm -hmm. financing. And one of the interesting things that I think was I mentioned also in one of my recent columns for Northern Miner was the entire mining industry, that's, you know, sort of 2,000-odd listed companies in total, is worth somewhat a little less than the, than Apple, you know, which is uh, Apple's worth $2 trillion And the mining industry, if you, you total all the listed companies, so it doesn't include state-owned companies, but if you include all the listed companies, it's about $1.6 at the moment. So to me anyway, and obviously I'm biased as a mining engineer, but it's mind-boggling that one company can be worth the, the entire world's mining industry. It's, it sounds like an opportunity maybe as, as things revert yeah, to I the mean as they do. But, uh, I, but Yeah, I don't know if it means the mining industry is too low or Apple's too high. Some, <laughs> yeah, I was thinking the same thing. Right. <laughs> That's great. Okay, so now zooming out a little bit, how do you see things? Like when you're thinking about the mining industry today, uh, you you know, you used to work at the Mining Journal. You have a background. Sounds like you spent most of your career in mining. What are you thinking? What are you concerned about? What's on your mind? Well, I mean, unlike a lot of folk, I'm not that worried about metal prices. I have to say, and it may be very unpopular with your readers and listeners, but I think the gold price is, is too high where it is at the moment. And I've always thought gold is a peculiar metal because apart from anything else, and you'll you'll probably know the statistics, but you know, well over half the mining companies in the world are looking for gold or, or mining gold. The percentage of the industry's finance and just general activity is massively skewed towards gold, which tells me it's the price is already high enough to attract interest. So gold, I think, probably should come down in price. All of the metals, I think, probably over time are going up because if you look at all the statistics on populations and GDP and um, just general long-term trends, it's inescapable we're going to still need more metal. And that's notwithstanding the fact we will use more substitution and we use thinning and you know we'll get more efficient at recycling. I, I get all that, but we still need a lot more metals with the, the population growing and everyone wanting to be American. You know, the Americans consume a lot more than most people. And when we, when you know, all the Chinese and all the Indians and the Nigerians and the like all have the goods that the Americans do, they're going to need a lot more copper and a lot more, you know, steel. So the industry is set fair in terms of demand going forwards. 
the concern I have is the things that constantly I've been writing about for donkey's years. It's it's an unpopular industry, so the, the, the best caliber people don't go into it. I mean, as it happens, my eldest son has gone into mining, but he's gone through it through the finance route. You know, he went into accountancy and he ended up, you know, fairly senior with First Quantum. But they don't generally go into mining. I mean, it's slightly different in the developing countries. But in the developed world, it's not top of mind to go into mining. And eventually that's going to bite us because the best people aren't going into it. And it's just not a popular sector for women as well. So, you know, you get bright people aren't going into it. Uh, women generally aren't, you know, there's obviously exceptions, but generally speaking, it's not very popular for female gender. And crucially, you know, we, we talk a good game, you know, ESG, the environment, so, you know, social governance and everything. Every company writes about it, um, you know, ad nauseum. It's, it has pages in their annual report. And then, you know, a couple of months ago, we get Rio Tinto blowing up uh, 46,000 year old Aboriginal caves. And as far as I'm aware, nobody's been sacked for that yet. And at that point, you just, you know, the whole world was watching and they say, oh, sorry, we didn't read that report. Our mistake, you know, won't happen again. And that's just not good enough. You know, it's another ratchet down that the industry suddenly become less popular again. And that's going to get us in the end in that, you know, nobody's going to accept mines in their backyard when we've got this dreadful reputation still. And we're not really doing much to improve it, I don't think. Yeah, that was a pretty shocking event that happened. And you know what was interesting? Like I've been sort of kind of hammered away at Rio Tinto the last two shows and uh, even where a really friendly PR guy reached out to me. And that was all of what last show was about. And I think what was maybe most disturbing was it wasn't like, everything changed once that the blast had happened. You kind of got the sense that the way they dealt with it, yeah. specifically the no one is responsible and just the whole and the way that even Sam Welsh, the former CEO, didn't testify, I think it was a voluntary thing yeah. with the Australian Parliament. Yeah, I think, and, yeah. yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I, I, I agree. And, the, I, you know, I'm a mining engineer and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm an apologist for the industry. And, I, I, you know, I, we, a lot of companies do do good things. And generally, individually, you know, I think the heart's in the right place. But with the big companies are, are still not doing the right things. And the single word is I'm embarrassed. You know, I mean, yeah. you know, you almost don't want to admit to being a mining engineer when that happens now. And, you know, I'm living in Wales now. I retired in Wales and the country's chocker full with, you know, former mines and mine, mine engineers. But we've got a bad reputation. It's just, you know, a year before January 2019, they managed to, you know, want its dam in Brumando. You know, they kill scores of people. And that, they'd had a dam failure a couple of years before. You know, and you, you expect better care, really. You know, these things were known to be dangerous. They had consultancy reports saying that they were these dams weren't safe. The design they had was not ideal. You know, and it's the the world's watching on. And, you know, that's two of the biggest companies in the world, Vale and uh, Rio, make catastrophic mistakes. And nobody really seems to pick up the tab or nothing changes, as you say. And as a sector, we've got to stop worrying so much about gold. You know, I can't remember if I've written about it yet, but we're adding to gold at one and a half percent a year. You know, we right. the best part of 190,000 tons of gold in the world because you tend not to lose gold. You remember where you put it. So almost all the gold we've ever mined is still with us. 
we're adding to it at one and a half percent a year. We don't need any more gold. You know, every gold mine in the world could shut down for a year and it wouldn't affect the gold price. So what are we doing mining and exploring for gold? And there's all these other important metals that the world needs. It's just, you know, we've we've lost we've lost sight of what the industry is for and all about and we're doing the little things all right. But we we I think we've missed the big picture, to be honest. And all the top CEOs are accountable. Yeah, it's maybe it's emblematic of the industry where the Prime concern is gold. I mean, it kind of says it all, doesn't it? Now, I mean, it's a capitalist world and these companies are all out profit driven, but there is a change in climate. I mean, that's kind of what this whole ESG thing is all about. It's about, it's not just about profits anymore. And like I was saying to you earlier about Rio, it's like the shocking part was that anyone would dare say that nobody's responsible because at Rio Tinto, because if, if, if you're the head of an organization and nobody is responsible and bad things happen, well, who's responsible? It's the yeah. head of the organization. This is like business management 101. Yeah. And if, you, if know? You, pull, you know, if you're pulling down top dollars, you know, you, you should know these things. Or, you know, if you, if you don't know, then that's the reason to go as well. You know, I mean, you, you either knew it and you, you made the wrong decision, so you go, or you, you, you didn't know, so you go. Either way, something as catastrophic as that happens, whether at Vale or Rio, I mean, I'd have taken out the whole board, to be honest, but it's... They wrote that report. I mean, that's kind of the, yeah, yeah, like, I mean, that's the following question. It's like, well, who's saying nobody is responsible? Yeah. You know, it's just like, who dares? Like, Yeah. So, the the thing that's, you know, I mean, obviously, I've 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 done my career now, but I mean, the, the thing that's really sad is ironically that the mining industry is the solution to a lot of the world's problems you know batteries and electric vehicles and the rest of it you know that is the way forwards but we need copper for that and we need you know we need the battery metals you know the the whole nine yards of them and so the industry is is the solution to the you know whether it's wind energy or solar energy it all needs a lot more you know wiring and copper we're just facing the peak time coming up for a lot of these metals and i exclude gold again but, you know, battery metals, it's got exotic metals, they've all got fantastic properties. We should be mining the, you know, the, the cadmiums of this world and the, you know, the, the, the smaller metals and demonstrating it's us that's going to see us to see the world right. You know, whether it's fertilizers is the other one. You know, nobody talks about fertilizers and, you know, that no. should be the se- sexy subject. That's what we should be banging on about is how the mining industry is going to. Um, the produce world. the fertilizer minerals to, to help us get the food food production right. Yeah, it's interesting. This, the storytelling uh, could use some work. So how do you see this? I mean, ESG is, I'd say it's the last, it really started gaining momentum. You know, I dare say the last year. I mean, when I think it was Blackstone, when they yeah. had their big allocation or when they had their big pronouncement that they were basically not supporting, you know, ESG unfriendly companies. I mean, I might be oversimplifying that story, but uh, so what's your take on basically ESG and do you see it as a successful thing and effective? Yeah, yeah. uh, What what do you, what's your take? No, I agree with you entirely. It's not absolutely the trend. You only, you you can speak to any teenage or any school age kid that is what they're all about. They're, they're incredibly environmentally aware than the new generation. And, and I don't think that's going to change anytime soon, you know, whether it's plastic in the oceans or anything. I mean, my grandkids don't allow us to give them plastic straws now in that, you know, they're, 
they're adamant about it. You know, they're real. Yeah, the plastic straws. That's a, that's a big one. Actually, yeah, yeah, absolutely, it? and, and yeah. quite right too. And you know, we've already bought the damn things, and you know, we got we got a drawer full of them, but we'll have to throw them away because. Yeah, our grandkids aren't going to touch them. It's and it's 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 impressive. I mean, it's and you know they are watching the oceans and they're watching what we you know how we husband things. And if we can change the dialogue so that you know we are going to mine more fertilizers more efficiently and we are going to produce the the battery metals and everything. And far too much of the dialogue is on things that the world doesn't actually need. You know, we talk about gold, but you know, two thousand US dollars for an ounce. An ounce isn't much. You know, I. Just if I had two thousand dollars to spend, I'm certainly not going to be buying an ounce of gold. You know, there's, you know, and the, the youngsters will know there's better things to spend two thousand dollars on. And it's yeah, it's, like we're putting energy in a sense. Your point is is because some people would say, well, Chris, look at the monetary system. But your point is is we're putting energy into getting stuff out of the ground. So why are we spending all this energy? And focus on getting gold, which, frankly, other than it being money, isn't particularly useful. Is that? No, no that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, it's it's difficult because you know we got Warren Buffett now investing in the gold industry, but I mean, you know, at an individual level, and you know, an individual miner or a shareholder or whatever, I, I get it. You know, I'm not a, I'm not, a, not an idiot, but I mean, it's from an industry's perspective and from a world's perspective, it's not what we need. It's not going to help the world in the, you know, 3000 years time. Yeah. It's not a great story for the mining industry either. I mean, you come out of, uh, with the mining journal there. So you understand story and perception. Oh, and yeah. The, the hook in the first sentence, you know, I mean, it just, it's a, it's a real turn. You know, you, we mine gold and we promptly bury it back in a bank vault or in it, you know, it's, it's, it's it's a peculiar metal. I mean, it you know it's 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 say you know it's contributing half of the mining industry's resources at the moment, but in in terms of value to the world, it's what is it third now after a, a coal and iron ore, you know, and it's about the same as copper. But it's you know that's market value. But in terms of its value to humanity, it's it's pretty hard to argue. So. We've discussed ESG then a little bit here. So are there other trends you see, like as we look at the mining sector and its relationship to the wider world? I mean, I guess there's the technology theme. I mean, are you looking at other things too, or is pretty much ESG? No, I mean, it I mean is it's, front it's, and center, it's, but. it's things that go hand in hand with that. Obviously, we're getting more efficient at water usage. There's, there's inevitably going to be more automation because partly because People don't want to join the industry, but it's, you know, it's, there's a massive trend towards safety. You know, I mean, we you just yeah. can't send people into risky areas now. I mean, when I started, you know, I worked on the gold mines in South Africa and the fatality rates were just dreadful. And it's just not acceptable now, which is the one that's a certainly one very big achievement of the mining industry. You know, we've, we've made mines much, much safer. You know, you, you, you go underground now, you expect to come out. And right. it's um that, that's a that's a not inconsiderable change and it's going to get better and better with you know technology so it might once we've got automated minds that might appeal to millenniums and you know the youngsters coming through and obviously if you haven't got to go down with a pickaxe and you just can operate you know the iron ore mines in uh, the pilbara from from perth it's a much more attractive sector to be in so that that will that will improve things going forwards and that's clearly a trend. Yeah, I mean, to your point, I mean, you saw the, I don't know if you heard about the Tesla conference call with Elon Musk basically 
making the call for nickel miners. Yeah. So I guess the, the, yeah. I guess my question is is so we've identified where the mining industry is kind of failing and since what do you think they should do? Like how do you change the story again? You have a, a background in in the story with the mining journal. How do they change the story? The problem is most of the dialogue, um, and particularly conferences, I mean, I've been, to, and I'm sure you're the same, I've been prompting conferences and, you know, very worthy speeches and, you know, presentations, and we tend to be talking to each other. I mean, I've been to various conferences, particularly in London, when there hasn't been a journalist in the room. And if there has, it's been the FT. Right. You know, and the, the FT is not, the, is not it's, it's the people that read the FT and not the audience that our problem is with. You know, it's the people that read the, well, the red tops, they call them here. You know, it's the popular press. And we're not getting, we're not getting to Joe Public at all. They don't know the, the industry. They don't know the companies. They don't know the people. We're just not getting to them. You know, we might get to the financiers through the FT and, you know, Wall Street Journal, and we talk to each other and we convince ourselves we're doing a good job, but we're not getting to the schools at all. You know, your average school kid doesn't know anything about mining, and it's we just not got the program of getting to the, you know, the next generation's opinion makers, or, you know, people that want to join the industry. It's just, it just doesn't happen. I've been saying it for yonks, and it's just, it, it ain't likely to happen suddenly. So, I mean, it, I don't understand why there's not been a more of an imperative. I suspect it's because each CEO has to do their own thing in their own, you know, short time frame, and nobody's looking 10, 20 years ahead for what's good for the industry, because short term, it's probably bad for individual companies because they've got to, allocate the decent amount of their revenue to, to projects that aren't going to return anything in their tenure. Um, so the, the thing's designed to fail, basically, the short-term you know, executives on a long-term industry. Um, and I don't know how you get around that, but it's shorter some of these institutions becoming much more powerful, and they, they've been miserable so far. You know, I won't name names, but you can think of quite a few of the institutions that are set up to to help the industry long term, and they, they've not really done much, and that's because they're beholden to the individual companies that finance them. It's interesting. I, I think it's true as far as these CEOs get in, and in a sense, like if you're in an unloved industry like mining, an unglamorous kind of don't want to overstate things here, but a kind of unsexy industry like mining. Kind of a no news is is good news. Yeah, if you're yeah, in no, charge there, there because that. if you're in the I mean, news, you know, there's already you're going to get a whole bunch of attention from people you don't want to hear from, probably. Yeah, you know what I mean. So they're so it's and one CEO probably feels even though he's a CEO or she is the CEO of a major multi-billion-dollar corporation might not feel like they have enough to move the needle all by themselves. No. Uh, so no. in a sense, though, is does this sort of bring us back to this idea though of a kind of vacuum of leadership of sorts, or or am I wrong? Is that stating no, too much? No, but that is, I agree with you. That is the problem. You know, you get individual because um, certainly whenever I've looked, run the numbers we did at S and P, this isn't a very consolidated industry. You know, we think BHP's big or Vale's big or whatever, but on a global scale, they are very small companies. As I'm saying, you know, the whole industry is smaller than Apple from the start. So, you know, the CEO of Apple says something, you all sit up and take notice. But the individual CEOs of mining companies, we're not very consolidated. We could do with the top five all joining together, and then they might be slightly, you know, they might be big enough for somebody to take notice. But at the moment, they just don't move the curve for most of the managers and the like. You know, just nobody's listening. And so 
I think the to me the only narrative that's going to work is I don't know if you saw the other day the European Union put out a report again saying how critically short they were of strategic metals and you know we've got a real problem coming in Europe in that we don't right, mine a lot right. of the metals that that are necessary. Well, yeah. we've not really looked terribly hard in in either Europe or in our you know some of the satellite countries, and if the industry could step up and actually help individual countries or regions sort out their strategic metals, which is, of course, very handy with the disagreements between North America in particular and Russia and China and Europe and, and well, probably everyone. You know, if we can start being a solution to regional shortages of metals and shortages of some metals full stop, like um, battery metals, you know, and um, cobalt, for example, you know, one of the few places you can mine it at the moment is the DRC. Well, that's a problem. People having to redesign their batteries because they can't rely on that supply. Well, let's find it somewhere else and let's become part of the solution to the world's problems. And, you know, until we start doing that, we're on, we're always on the defensive. You know, the next time there's a dam failure, we ratchet down again. And next time somebody blows up some Aboriginal caves, we're down again. We're actually constantly giving, dripping out bad news rather than going, putting our hand up and going, Hey, we can solve that. We can, you know, we can mine cobalt somewhere else. We can deliver Europe strategic metals. We'll make an extra effort. Um, but where that's coming from, I haven't a clue. It's not individual. It's so difficult. It's not big enough. Because it's really, because we live in a profit driven world. So it's sort of like, I mean, it's gold, yeah. gold is profitable. It's, how do you explain to the board, no, we're not going to make as much money because we no, want to mine cobalt in Ontario. So, no, that's, and, you know, yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah, your fiduciary duty is to your shareholders. And, you know, that's quite right. That's quite, you know, you, you've got to do what's profitable. And so you're going to stick into gold mining, even though that's not actually going to help the industry long term. And I haven't got a solution. And, I, I, you know, as I said, I've been writing about it for ages and I've never actually come up with a solution, unfortunately. All I'm trying to do is point out where the problem is. And it's interesting because I, I think these mining companies are making an effort, to be fair. Like, I mean, you listen to a Barrick opening of their conference calls. Oftentimes, they'll be talking about ESG at the start. Uh, it was Cameco. We listened to that. Uh, yeah. There were other conference calls you know, Freeport McMoran and that guy, uh, the CEO there just joined some international mining group and he's talking all about ESG. So they are making an effort, but I, it, it's just completely not moving the needle in terms from the PR perspective and from the mass media. It's just like it's not yeah. happening. Yeah, Tinto were making, you know, they always started their press conferences about ESG and there's, you know, I remember no, when it wasn't. I remember exactly. when it wasn't mentioned in annual reports when I started in the industry, and suddenly it's a big part of annual reports. So, absolutely, we're talking about it. But I can't say you go out in the street, or, or, or any of your readers go out in the street and ask them the first couple of school kids they they come to, you know, what they think their perception is of the mining industry. And they'll mention the Ducan Gorge, um, you know, totally. That's, that's something my friends have heard of. If I yeah. bring up mining at some dinner. That's something they've heard of. Like, yeah, no, that's right. And they weren't have heard like, of the, you know, you know, ESG um, pontification ESG. from CEO somewhere. <laughs> yeah. just, um, Hilarious. Just on a, as we wrap up here, something that you were bringing up, China and Russia, it, they seem, especially China, they seem to have a different mentality when it comes to this mining thing, which again is, I see as a kind of a tension between our kind of profit-driven system and like when 
China buys a mine, you don't get the sense that they're going to sell it or that they're out to just, you know, you get the sense that they're just going to hold on to it forever. And that's totally a, a perception. It's not based on any sort of strong knowledge. But just as you see them snap up all these mines and then you see like there's a real, yeah. uh, you know, especially these tensions with the U.S. dollar and it being used as a reserve currency and uh, the President Trump using it as a kind of uh, – way of getting people into shape as a kind of in a threatening way you see this kind of rush towards gold and again it's you don't get the sense that these are private companies these are state-backed companies and you just get the sense that china and even their china and russia are battling over cardinal resources in ghana and you know even they're battling with each other which is a rare story here so yeah. do you just have any thoughts on this sort of state-backed versus kind of a capitalist approach and what do you make of all that yeah, well, it's it's clearly from from the mining industry's point of view that particularly China, as you say, they just take long term decisions. You know, they do things which are generally good for the country. It's what the what the you know the Politburo, you know, or, or the the ruling um, party wants, or you know, it's their strategic five year or ten year plan. And it's it's not just state owned versus privately owned. Actually, it's um, I was giving a paper in China mining three years ago, and I was talking. Well, one of the presentations was by, a, you know, as far as I was aware, a completely listed um, Chinese mining company. And his presentation, ironically, was talking about what, what China needed. You know, they were doing what, what the country wanted. And, you know, this was a listed company. You know, we were saying that you're meant to do what's good for your shareholders, but, you know, their shareholders were obviously, you know, Second Chinese rank. Communist Party. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it, and it didn't seem to be pressure. I mean, not that I was aware of. And it's yeah. they they do take you know they're looking for things that um, the country's decided is a good you know strategic or you know they're short of and it's going to be hard to compete. You know, I mean, if, if they're willing to forego the profit, you know, unprofitable a few years because they're taking a fifty-year view on something, it's as you say, it's it's. It's going to be difficult because you know they'll they'll take the best assets because they're long term projects. You know they're going to be very expensive to explore or develop, but you know there might be a hundred year mine underneath it all, and they're just saying, well, yes, we'll do that now. We'll do the hard yards now, and we'll we'll benefit from it in twenty years time. Or can you think of a CEO in the Western world that's going to make that decision? No, like exactly, they're playing by. A kind of a different set of rules it's different rules yeah i mean it's you know yeah, so and it's yeah. kind of scary because in the short term we can go oh our capitalist system is great and everything and look at what we're doing free market yay in the long term though it's a like you sound the alarm you yeah, know yeah. like it's like uh and you see it in our comments like when we have these you know, like the TMAX story. I don't know if you're paying attention to that. In the Arctic, I think it was Shandong Gold wants to buy the TMAX mine in Canada's Arctic. And oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, the government has been just, they've been just holding it back. I don't think they've made a decision yet. And they're taking their sweet time, uh, which I think is fine, especially if Canadian citizens are being held uh, without fair trials. Uh, mm -hmm. But you, it's everything's getting politicized and it's always has been. In a sense, mining is... It is a geopolitical thing. 
I mean, to state the obvious. Well, it's the, 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 the important thing is it's, you know, unlike most other sectors, it's a wasting asset. You know, it, you mind it and it's used. I mean, gold, it tends to be kept, stay around. But, you know, coal and copper and everything, there's a bit of recycling. But generally speaking, when you mine it, it's used up. And right. so, you know, the race for resources is enormous, but it's a long-term thing, you know. it's um, You need to get control of this stuff while it's still available. Indeed, and maybe that's a, a good note to leave it on. Chris, thanks for joining. Any parting thoughts? No, I think that's probably enough to be going with, isn't it? <laughs> okay, yeah. well, thanks again, Chris, and okay. uh, we'll talk to you soon. Cheers. That wraps up another edition of the Northern Miner Podcast, episode number 203. It continues here. If you ever want to help the show, just simply leave a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Those are invaluable. Or you share with a friend. Think there's something interesting, you know, a student that might be interested. Send it their way, and we will be eternally grateful. And until next week, take care.